Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. Welcome to another episode of Really True Fiction. My name is Luke Mason. And my name's David Parker. David, what is the worst reason someone has barged into your bedroom for? Oh my. The worst reason. <laughs> uh, I believe I had a roommate once that burst into my room to tell me that uh, the toilet was flooding. Okay. Yeah, that was pretty bad. Because mm, least... I had been the one that clogged it and he had diarrhea. Uh... And he was like, you know... He was not thing. happy about that. And no, the, the end result was the opposite of what he would have, you know. Okay, well, that like, still sounds much better than not being told the reason why someone's barging into your room. And then they just barge in. <laughs> yeah, I agree. What's the problem? What's the problem? I'm not telling you that. <laughs> you don't get to know that. <laughs> Welcome back to a new episode. It's been a little while it since has. last one, although I guess if you listen to this far in the future, it could be just as, <laughs> as if it was sequential happening. as any other one. Yeah. But, but in yeah. our life, in our, you know, the trunk, it has not been truncated time, right? I don't even know the last time we did an in-person episode. Because I'm... Over two years ago. I'm visiting Alberta right now for Thanksgiving. I live back in BC. 2020? I would think, yeah. Must have been. Oh, it was definitely. Because you weren't really at that. Yeah, you'd moved out yeah. by 20. Yeah, so probably about two years. Two years. I'd, I should go back and figure out which episode it is, actually. <laughs> yes, we can put it in the show notes. Yeah. Anyway, David, welcome back to the show. Thank you. It's good to be back. Um, long time host. Yes. <laughs> First time <laughs> First coming time back as coming host. back as host. <laughs> yeah. No, it's been months and months, but I'm glad to be back. Mm-hmm. Um, how are you? Oh, I've had a journey. It's been a lot of ups and downs, but I think a lot of this podcast that we've done over the years was quite helpful in that because, you know, a lot of the lessons that we talk about, I used on that journey. I would yeah. 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 You've started your own podcast. Started, yes, definitely started my own podcast, uh, The Canadian Story. Very happy with how that's going. I've just yeah, got, you guys churn out episodes. You and we Zach. do. It's a more of a, definitely not what this one is. It's not this soul felt, you know, reflection on the matter matters of grave importance. It's more news, but we, and, and more even more than that, interviewing interesting people, yeah. which totally different style than what we have here, but I've enjoyed it a lot and that one's done well. And and then I've got, uh, you know, my own little political movement now mm-hmm. that I started in Alberta, uh, Take Back Alberta, which is a civic education institution, you know, to, to teach people how their democracy works. Because came to the realization a lot of people just don't know how their society works. Yeah, I remember in grade 11, when I, my first year in, in high school or going to public school, in the socials class, we did a, a section on civics. Nothing really stuck from it with me other than kind of some history of parliamentary democracy and stuff and how it works yeah but they don't really teach you much about i don't think there's a lot of it in school is there no hardly hardly any and even i got an undergrad in uh, political science and even that 
was not primarily focused on like the let's you know the tools of government the functions of democracy parties you know lobbyists the media these things are definitely not what's kind of reflected on in uh even a university education on politics why do you think that is well i think that those are the those are the things that maybe are the tricks of the trade you know you could argue that that for a long time people were keeping those things secret how those things worked and they mm. didn't want lots of people knowing because if lots of people knew then then maybe they wouldn't have the same control over the system mm. uh, so that'd be one one thing for sure canada is a very uh patriarchal place and i don't mean that in the you know the male patriarchy i just mean in the you know we were a colony and we and we kind of liked being a colony in fact a lot of people who preferred being under the dominion of a ruler moved here you know the loyalists mm. our ancestors yeah and so I think that maybe there's just a more of a sense of being ruled here than perhaps in a place like the States that, or Switzerland that really value democracy or uh, Israel for that matter. Germany to a degree now, very different before, obviously. Yeah, that's interesting. To your first point, are you saying that maybe there's this kind of shadowy, behind the scenes, subterfuging agency that has an agenda to not reveal itself to the common folk, uh, but still put them through the ringer. I would say that's exactly what <laughs> well, I believe. Well, that is believe. such an interesting <laughs> factoid, David, because that actually segues us into today's book. I think we, we, we guided that one really well. <laughs> <laughs> it's organic. It just arose. It, 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 it just arose. It, uh, just arose, yeah. Yes, today, for this episode, we are discussing Franz Kafka's, I guess, novella... It's about 100 pages, 150 pages, novella The Trial. So The Trial, he actually wrote in 1914, but then he didn't publish it, and he died in 1924, and one of his friends, Max Brood or something like that, or Brent, published it a year after his death in 1925. So it was published in 1925. I didn't know so it was written 11 years before that. What's that line? There's only three ways to tell the truth, anonymously, humorously, or posthumously. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So yes. Uh, this book is an indictment on uh, would-be authorities around the Czech Republic or whatever it was called in 1914. I guess I could look that up. Was the Czech part of the German it, Empire or was it, it was, part of the Austro-Hungarian? Not, honestly... Would was it its own country? Eh. I think, I don't know, to be honest. Well, obviously, 1914 is a tumultuous time in Europe <laughs> and yes. the Czech Republic and that kind of thing. So there's a lot going on. Definitely when on the book. border with the Soviets and the, mm -hmm. it would have been the Bolshevik Revolution would have been happening in Russia. So, no. And it's in that <laughs> it's area. Like, it's in Eastern Europe. So yeah. I'm just saying that Russia, there's a lot happening. There's a lot of Russian influence yeah. on this region. Totally. And Russia's going through a lot right now. At that, at that time in yeah. history. I feel like you could say that at any time. <laughs> what, what is I, I, have you heard this joke? Okay, When's Russia been on a break? I have a joke for you. Oh, I have a joke go. for you. Okay, Big so, money. you know, the uh, the British uh, gentleman, he says, I would die for honor, mm. right? And the, and the French gentleman says, I would die for love, Yes, right? And then the, the Russian says, I will die. Yes. <laughs> Perfect, perfect <laughs> joke for the country that gave us nihilism. Yes, yes. And I feel like, I mean, this, if it isn't a little bit of nihilism, it smells of nihilism, mm. this book. Yeah, a little. Had you read The Trial before? I had not. I had not. Have you, had you read Metamorphosis before? I, I've actually not read any Kafka. Oh, yeah, so this, this is, is your a first. New, this is an introduction for me, which... Okay, yeah. so I had read Metamorphosis, and I think I've read a few other of his short stories, but I can't remember any off the top of my head. But he, well, so he's... I think most famous for Metamorphosis, but 
the term Kafka-esque, I think, comes much more from, from the this trial. book, yeah. The Trial, than that one. Yeah. And in my opinion, The Trial is a significantly better a more interesting story. Oh, yeah. I haven't read Metamorphosis mm. yet, but I will. Yeah. I mean, I love this genre of literature. Yeah. The, you know, novella, the short, powerful clip, vignette, small period of time in a person's life that, with great significance. Mm-hmm. I'm a huge... I don't know. It's Dickens-esque in a sense, yeah. right? But it's also... You see it a lot in Fitzgerald. You see it a lot in Salinger. Uh, we saw it in Catcher in the Rye. Love this style, to be mm-hmm. honest, which I guess is a modern, fairly modern. But how would you categorize it? The style of the trial? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Ryman and Timon. No. <laughs> oh, well, actually, I I think one of the coolest parts about this book, because this book is very dark, but it's kind of funny. But I really noticed that I didn't ever feel centered in this story. Hmm. Um other than like you're following this Joseph K character and i just felt like the the physical area or the physicality of what was going on was kind of under described so it was much more inner monologue yeah there's like there's a lot of conversation about he went through the door but you don't know where the door is right. and you don't know how big it is and you don't know where it is in relation to other things yeah. in the room yeah it walked through the streets they're all of a sudden in like these attics so you're like trying to mentally trying to picture what kind of buildings these could possibly be which, where yeah which gives the novel that dark but dark but foggy well scent. my thought is it's like there's so much off yeah like there's just something not quite right about even the t- the like tone and the description of the physical environment, which is, I think, to mirror the um, wonkiness that Kay is feeling throughout much of it. Because even me as the reader, I'm thinking to myself, okay, there's a courtroom in the attic and there's like 17 people there. Like what building could possibly fit this? But then they they're go all through in a, a tenement house. But then yeah. they go through a hallway and then they're like in a plaza kind of thing. It's so there's, a, there's an under description of the imagery of this book that I think puts me in a more experiential frame of mind to what the point of this book is, which is not really being able to ascertain what's happening to you. Which is really a huge so part that's of the, the literary condition. I think that's a literary yeah. compliment to yeah, I think, well, this yeah. style of book. Which is maybe why I never thought about it until you just said it, but why people love uh, like like I've found so many people who love literature love Kafka, mm. right? They're always like people who love good writing, yeah, even more than good story. When those secondary and tertiary elements of a book aid the narrative, or yeah, the plot. When the you know the or method, the, themes. the the method is or the me- or the the method is the message, yeah. Right? Like how in the medium me- is the message. That's, <laughs> yeah. the, that's what I'm looking for. In in like how in Memento because it's made backwards yeah. and out of sequence, it's. Certainly the first time you watch that film, you're like, what is happening? Yeah, Which is supposed to be putting you in the shoes of what Lenny in, you know, Guy Pierce's character in that movie is going through. Yeah. Apparently that new movie Father kind of does it. It's filmed in a way, because it's a movie about dementia, oh. it's filmed in a way to make you, the audience, feel like you don't really, can't really follow what's happening. Wow. Yeah. So that I like that. Yeah. And, and this, but this book isn't very obvious about it. I just kind of noted. No, you. Yeah, I hadn't noticed until like, you brought it up. I, yeah. I found I found unlike Dickens or unlike really imagistic type of authors, I had a really hard time visioning what was happening. 
around the but, characters. But, but you didn't have a hard time visioning what was happening. No, no, no. I had the the plot of the book yes. is very easy yes, to yes. follow. But really good other kinds of writing that's really good is like George R. R. Martin, he describes Absolutely, the world. You can yes. imagine what the trees look like yes, or the yes. horses or, yeah. or, or Lord yeah. of the Rings. You can like even though it's a totally fantastical world, I could still feel like I could imagine what Tom Bombadil looked like or what the hobbits looked like or what the forest looked like. Like it's just so much good description. And and like I had no idea how to visualize these houses or these rooms that they're in because they're so culturally described and then prose takes them through things that don't add up if you think about what is going on in those rooms or something like yeah. that. Yeah. So I felt kind of unmoored from whatever physical place these people are in, which I think is part of the point of the book because it's very much like I agreed. It's Dude, actually like more this. ethereal. This it's is much a very more good it's much more ethereal. You're opening my mind on. up. I like you always do. You always well do. before we do a plot rundown, I just want to say Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for listening to Really True Fiction. If you want to get a hold of us, you can send us an email, reallytruefiction at gmail.com. We have a Facebook group as well to join. I think that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe one day we'll start an email newsletter. Who knows? Mm-hmm. But uh, so, and yeah, you can get a hold of us. For almost how many episodes are we at now? Uh, this one will be 82. 82. Yeah, with yeah. a few bonuses along the oh, way. Oh, I as love well. it. Well, but we've got some great yeah. bonus episodes. Yeah. And I've been looking forward to doing this one for a while, doing the trial, because. Uh, uh, Very Bad Wizards has recently done a two-parter on the trial. Oh, wow. And okay. So maybe it's like the competitive bone in me is like, well, this podcast that really inspired me to, yeah. to start this one, now we'll see. Now we'll see. Now we'll yeah. see. Wow, we'll see how the conversation goes. <laughs> yeah, I like it. Yeah, I like yeah. it. So um, great book. Okay. So the trial. It's not a long book. Like I said, it's about 160 pages. And our central character is Joseph K, but mostly referred to as just K throughout. K period. Yeah, the novel. Again, I think the fact that this is an under-described main character adds to the um, uncanniness of the proceedings. So the book kind of opens the first chapter. He's in his bedroom in the morning, and these two police officers just come into his bedroom, and they tell him that he's under arrest, but they don't know what for. (laughs) <laughs> and then they spend like several pages chastising him and like berating him like a parent would to get on with it. And they even tell him that he's wearing the wrong kind of shirt, which I think is, I chuckled. I was like, I don't think that's the police's business to, to care about what kind of shirt you're wearing no. <laughs> to go out of your house. No. So there's that kind of weird overstepping of boundary there by the by the police in this. And then he goes to court and finds out that he's has a trial. It has been a little while since I've read this, so I, it, the memory is a little hazy, but most of the book is him having different conversations with different people related to him and or related to the court system. Conversations with his lawyer, who's kind of not that helpful. Conversations with some a woman he's interested in, who's also not that helpful. Conversations with his landlady. More conversations with the cops. Conversations with the cops' boss. A conversation with a painter, which is kind of the point of the book, is yeah. the conversation with the painter near the end. And then never really being able to settle it. Conversations with his boss and how he just kind of becomes used to the fact that he's on trial for something. But the point is he never knows what he's on trial for. He never gets told what his charge is. But he goes, 
to his execution. Yeah, and they kill willingly. him at the end of the book. Well, yeah. Like yeah. he doesn't he doesn't really fight it. Cuz at at that point I think metaphysically he feels like he deserves it. Like he's done something. Even it, it, he must have done something. They're killing him, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I think that that's part of the defeating uh, again, we'll get to that. I, I think that's again part of the point of this is to demoralize you. Uh, and this book yep. is very demoralizing as a reader as well as for Kay. And it's an interesting ending because the tone of the book, though he's arrested, though he's on trial, no one takes it seriously. Not even him. He tries to at first, and his uncle tells him to take it more seriously. That's another person he talks to is his uncle. But none of the authorities take it that seriously until they kill him. And that's, again, an interesting wrinkle into all yeah. of it. So you'd never read this before. This was my second time reading this. I'd read it maybe three or four years ago prior. Yeah, what were some of your first feelings about the trial? Uh, it's one of it. I mean, we're we're steeped in existentialism here, right? Yeah. And so the feeling, if you just want to go with the feeling that I got afterwards, was you know he just walks to his own death, like as if it didn't even really matter. Mm. Because, but but ultimately, when you kind of look at, I'm going to just call him K. Uh, Kay's life did it matter like what what was he doing like that, that <laughs> he was working in a bank you know what that brought him meaning <laughs> yeah there's almost like he didn't even care about his own life mm. and so I guess I was I was left with a kind of a haunt it felt haunting it was a haunting feeling oh yeah okay yeah because it, I think ultimately that's what I've been trying to avoid my whole life mm. is that feeling yeah like he must have done something but also like just it. the the it was a suppress the suppression mm. right the the just being bogged down by the system i remember once during the covid i got the wrong covid test i was supposed to get like a certain kind of pcr test and right I got a okay. different one yeah and uh, they wouldn't let me on my plane to go and because you got it, the wrong to, test to, because i got the wrong test it I was see. just the the cold heartlessness of bureaucracy it was like I, could, I, I was supposed, supposed to be going to meet a very senior government official in like another country to work on a huge business deal that was going to be great for my country and, and everything else. And nobody cared, right? Right. It was just soulless. You didn't tick the right box. I, and, and you couldn't break the right... Like it was like... It was one of the worst feelings of my life and it almost broke me. Mm. And so reading this reminded me of that feeling. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think it... <laughs> certainly not a happy book. No. But that's interesting. So you picked up predominantly on Cave's journey. Yeah. Through it. Okay. Yeah, I, th I can see that. And it's definitely a sad one. I wouldn't say I understood the lack of survival instinct in Kay because he, the monologue of the book or, or the narrative of it, like is he knows what's coming yeah. when they come for him and he's given up. But I think it's also the more sociological insight of the trial is that the whole book K has been under slight but persistent psychological barrage of kind of his own sanity around his own well-being right like they barge into his room yeah. and they tell him he's arrested and they don't have they don't know what the charge is and they're the tone of the cops is one of the whole, most hilarious parts of this book for me because not only do they not know what the charge is they chastise him like a school marm would for even asking like who are you to even ask you know and but it's not yeah. even it's it's like <laughs> the i'm i'm uh, you have to listen to me because i'm your parent yeah it's very parental and in a functioning judicial system let's say or law enforcement 
there isn't a kind of paternalism to it. It's a very straightforward, almost transactional, like here are your rights, here's the charge. So the point is, you know what you've done that you're in trouble with the state for, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like that's a hallmark of enlightened civilization. The state tells you what you've done to encroach upon its laws. But in this book, they don't tell him. So he's free to imagine the plethora of things it could have been. And I think that that's the thing, that that's the existential ennui that gets him to the point where at the end he's got nothing left to give because so much of the book is him not really being able, because it's amorphous, what have I done that's gotten me in trouble with the law? He thinks about everything, right? He goes yeah, over... Yeah, he drives himself mad. He goes over every possible sequence of interactions he's had that could be the thing that got him in trouble with them. So he's not himself. And I mean, that that's why I brought up the situation in the airport, yeah. because I felt like that was analogous. Mm-hmm. I was like, what have I done wrong? Well, but even I would say even though it's not like super great or legit, like at least I could tell you, you got the wrong test. Well, yeah, yeah. Right? No, but in the sense of like, what does that mean? Like that, that whole period <laughs> yeah, what's of COVID. what's the right test? Right, and why is the right test so important? I'm a healthy, you know, it's like, oh, you're killing people. You don't care about people. But but who am I killing? Well, I How mean. How am I killing them? You sure, know I mean? yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean. And they give you these, but anyway, it was so going back to the book, when he's going through that, right, where he, the, he's just, this, is this existential terror in a sense because it's like this machine is willing to destroy me so callously it doesn't care Mm -hmm. i'm not even a person to it yeah i i don't i don't even get the dignity of knowing why which is the point yeah the point is that the cops and then the legal system have so demoralized k by the end of the book that he isn't even able to stand up for his own life yeah because he's so defeated by this running around that he's done to try and figure it out. And then it's just, it's also like, (laughs) I don't know how trials work in real life in court processes, but I found it to be unlikely that everyone would be so blasé about it as they are in this book. You know, like the lawyers and the people and the attendants and even the judges are just like, ah, okay, we'll get back to this in a few years or something like that. And so it's just this kind of oppressive, ever-present thing in Kay's life. I have to imagine, and, and you know, like, I have to imagine it's something like the moment where you wake up every day and, I don't know, you remember you have cancer yeah. or something. Or you wake up and you remember that something is just really horrible in your life and it's kind of permanent, maybe. Well, I kind of thought that that's kind of the, the ultimate reflection of, of this book is <laughs> you're mortal. Well, yes, that's true, except that what I think is Kafka's great addition to that insight is that here is a very sophisticated and difficult way to pin down how human beings can add to that misery Mm. that already exists. Because everything that happens to Kay is ultimately done by other human beings to him, though they put up this kind of placeholder of the state or the lawyer or like the the title or the role it's actually i mean at the end of the day it's two men who stick a knife into k it's not right. some disembodied yes. state it's yes. two people yeah so well, well, that's that- really why kafka is i think ultimately celebrated as a social psychologist is his 
unweaving of how all of these things that are in life to hurt us can also be done by people and, and, and are done and, by and people. are organized and are if not like it's not like per se that the state says oh we're going to go after k today but the way that the legal system in this book is set up is that eventually someone like k is going to get got yeah it's inevitable and the reason it keeps going is human energy yeah so human energy is also something that goes into our mortality that's a tangent of like well i think that's the kind of thing that a liberal society should try to weed out that extra part of human action that puts energy into making life harder and worse for people yeah and and maybe that's really been the the adventure of democracy to a degree because if Mm. you think about it like for most of human history, you and I were talking about this yesterday on our walk. For mm-hmm. most of human history, people have been miserable to one another, right? And <laughs> treated each other good. like slaves, yeah. right? or had slaves, <laughs> yeah. literally, not like slaves. <laughs> like you know what I mean? But like even if they were supposedly free, like serfs, like our ancestors, they weren't mm-hmm. free. Yeah, they were just you know used. indentured. Yeah, indentured servants. I think it's strange that there's even a, a place where we are having this conversation where it's like in a liberal democracy, in a liberal world, in a sociological world, we need to like minimize the amount of suffering we put on one another. Mm -hmm. That wasn't a a thought. No. (laughs) That wasn't a way of viewing the world. And, and, and that's what we're, we're threatening with this tearing down of everything that we have, Mm. right? Is to go back to what he's describing because that was most of human history. Mm Mm-hmm. Right? The king didn't like you, so you died. Yeah. There was a really interesting wrinkle onto all of this that I think brought existentialism and modernity together in the 20th century with Kafka and other writers like Camus and Sartre and de Beauvoir. But throughout human history, as you say, people knew that life was pain and suffering. I mean, it would be almost kind of... <laughs> Stupid to phrase it that way. (laughs) That was just life, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Pain and suffering aren't even valenced terms. It's just, you know, like it's going to hurt to be alive. So it might not even have occurred to people to point it out. But I still think for much of that period of time, you you knew what it was that was going to get you, right? You could name it. You could psychologically apprehend the king or the king's guards. And you knew his motivation. He just wanted power over you or the animals that would attack you. They just are hungry or disease. disease. Like, and even if you have a, a superstitious antecedent for that disease, you know what it does to your body, right? Like there's something I think apprehendable about a lot of the ailments and illnesses and tyrannies of the past but what i really think grew in the 20th century that hadn't been seen to the degree that it was then because of modernity and technology was this growth of what we might lazily call bureaucracy or administrative states or administrations that impinge upon you things that are negative in your life that hurt you but they're disembodied and they're not personal and they're not clear what you have what you can do to to fix it right like in some sense though it might not be fair 
if you pay the king enough money, you fix the problem. Right? right, or you give him enough food, you fix yep. the problem. Yep. If you run fast enough away from the animal chasing you, you fix the problem. Or you, you know, right? you change your diet. You really focus on stuff. Maybe you can, maybe you can overcome disease. Yeah, right. But part of the point of this book is that at no point does K figure out how to fix this problem. So he is bereft of an answer, good or bad. Yeah. So that's a new layer of bad, I think, in social life, and. It's not exactly analogous, but, you know, like I struggle with things very deeply of like disembodied deaths. Yeah. All right. Like when I get an email out of the blue from the Canada Revenue Agency, I just start palpitating. Right. Because I don't know if I remember why the thing and like or like I had this one experience you remember where I owed the BC government a lot of money, but I didn't because I didn't live there during the time that they were charging me, but it went to collections. So I'm getting a phone call from some slime ball about, and I'm just like, well, and I don't, and I don't even know what to do remember, about yeah, it. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's like, I've wronged them, but I don't know how, and I don't know why. And again, because I do live in a erstwhile liberal democracy, they do give you phone numbers to call for, people to talk to to figure it out and they will tell you how to fix it it just takes a long time and is super annoying and so i i kind of i wouldn't the point of that story is that i understand the feeling oh yeah a little bit whether it be debt whether it be shuffling around for surgery or something right something someone in my family is kind of dealing with right now like that mental anguish around having to face a faceless system that can crush you but doesn't even notice you at the same time. And I it's, think yeah. and I think that depersonalization and that de-emphasis on you and your psychological well-being is the new tyranny of modernity. I think it's a new kind of tyranny. And by new I mean within the last 100 and 150 yeah. years. Yeah. And I think that's the real genius of Kafka in this book is to note that new kind of thing that makes our lives worse i like that do you know what i mean yeah i do and how much it makes our life (laughs) because you're never not thinking about it it's like uh have you ever watched that black mirror episode where uh you have a social score and it goes yeah yeah. you can't even like she was she wants to up her social score by going to this wedding Mm -hmm. because she's trying so hard to get to the wedding she's like actually causing social problems for herself. Totally. She's causing yeah. her score to go down and eventually she can't even rent a car anymore. Kind mm-hmm. of thing, right. That's basically this. Yeah. It's this mindless computer. Oh, algorithm. You, you haven't fixed your trial yet. Yeah. Okay. Oh, well, maybe I won't invite you to the next party or something. Exactly. Oh, you're, or, Oh, you're, you've been accused of something so heinous. You know, it's really made me appreciate something that I've always taken for granted in the society I lived in where it's that people I interact with, whether it be like a reciprocal nature of a business transaction, even at a store or talking to service reps or the few times I have had to talk to police officers about getting a criminal record check done for work is that they tell you exactly how much it costs and when it will be done by. (laughs) You know, like there's something in that specificity of cost Phone number, here's how you get a hold of me, here's who you need to talk to. Now, again, bureaucracies can be annoying. There is a, a more than metaphorical analogy when you 
get told to go to talk to one person in a bureaucracy and then they tell you you actually had to talk to somebody else and then there's the third person you do a runaround and then you're eventually talking to the first person again or something like that. But I never really thought about what a precious thing it is to have a unquestioned element of trust in even just the stores I go to. The number on the shelf that I have to pay is the number that shows up on the till when I bring it to the front. Yeah. There's not like a hidden charge. Oh, right? it's like, like, oh, this is just uh, a, <laughs> yeah. Well, there is some hidden charges, taxes. Sure. Well, but again, I, they're not hidden. Right. Whether or not you feel the justification of a tax rate, they tell you what it is. Yeah, true. So you can choose to buy it or not, or true, know, true. live in that province or not, or whatever, right? Yeah. So I really came to appreciate something I'd always just assumed was normal, which is a forthcoming nature of business and law about here's actually what you will do to be fair and what won't be. And like I work with kids and that's so crucial for rule building into games. If you tell a kid that they broke a rule that you didn't tell them what that rule was, that's like the most livid a kid gets. Oh, livid, yeah. livid and unfair because they didn't know. So I think it's that. I didn't know. Right. That... I didn't know is, I was breaking and, the rule. And this society that Kay is a part of has no compassion for that. No. Because they're like some sort of almost strict. Uh, they're, they're, they're too strict. Yeah. Right? This is too strict of a society. And we don't even know if it's a just rule or not, let alone... We don't know what the rule is. Yeah. We don't know what it is. Yeah. We never do. Really? Right? So why do you think... Kafka was so frightened by that, like in the sense of for yourself, when you experience that moment where the BC government's like, you owe us this money. <laughs> and, and I remember you, yeah, yeah. you really bothered you. And I've been in moments where, uh, for example, I had the wrong passport. It was still my passport. Oh, but like yeah, I right. lost it and I couldn't get on an airplane. It's this, uh, this faceless, you must have your papers. Right. But what was it? Just, Let's talk about that feeling because really the, the, this book encapsulates that feeling, right, of what can I do against this? Well, I think it's because we're so evolved to like have our uh, issues resolved face-to-face -face or even voice-to-voice -voice over the phone with people. Like That's a little uncanny still, but it's more normal because we understand the timbers and cadences of the human voice more or less. But with modernity, it's all, it is face. It's like, that's why they say it's faceless. Somebody sent you a letter saying you owe this and if you can't remember why or you don't know exactly what you did, maybe I did sign up for this thing however many years ago and maybe I do owe this money and I don't know how to like go about it to deal with it. And that example itself is a little bit not exactly right because I did kind of ignore something for a little while, but it was it was passive. I, I you know it was a good lesson for me in that sense. But it is it, it's that it's it's a weird kind of helplessness because yeah. you have a problem, but you don't know what the first step is to rectify it, and it's it's like hard to figure out exactly what the first step to rectify it is. Which again, I have to say, I, it's not as bad in Canada, obviously, because they give you phone numbers of people to call. To yeah, start re no, I agree. Rectifying no, this no, problem, no, right? So, yeah, yeah. It's that feeling of. Hmm. I'm, I'm unsettled. You know, my stomach is tight. I am on the defensive. I'm thinking of excuses, but it doesn't matter because there's nobody here to tell them to. And I am now 
uh, like in the Black Mirror episode, I am a check in the negative credit score to someone who does credit scores. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Or or whether literally or figuratively. And it's going to take a lot of unnatural kind of abstract work to fix that. And that isn't intuitive. No. Right? It's not an intuitive form. It's not how we of, even understand relationships or mm-hmm. anything. Yeah. So I, I just, I feel... You know, that's why these there's all these French words for existentialist thought, like ennui, like a, a listless kind of disconnect from reality when that kind of stuff happens. And it's so negative. And as the book goes on, Kay deals with that by kind of ignoring it, right? Yeah. Like it's just always there. But, but if, he doesn't but really think about but it. But if he doesn't look it. at it and he is trying to pass it off as not as big of a deal to other people in his life. And I think actually that I, that was more of what I got from the book. Mm. Yeah. Right. It's just the ignoring of that niggling thing that bothers you, that you don't pay attention to, that you don't deal with. Maybe it's that, you know, you know, you drink too much, but you know, that's just who you are. Mm -hmm. Or maybe it's that, you know, you eat too much, but it's just, you know, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. We all have those. Yeah that we try to pass off. Like, that's why I think that's the genius of this in my mind is he's, he's reflecting on, on so many layers on different things. Mm -hmm. But the reflection that really struck me was that thing you're not paying attention to becomes the thing that kills you. Yeah. And it was, it was there. And yeah, it's like the little pain you feel if you avoid going to the doctor because you don't want to have to like deal with that kind of, so yeah, there's like two major things going on in this book. It's Kay's reaction to something and not dealing with it, which is only part of the book because he does try to deal with it at the beginning, which is the f- other main part of the book, which is this blasé nature of this environment that as the book goes on, we learn that all the people he thinks are there to help him are actually just factions trying to learn more about the other lawyer or the other judge. It's all insular, right? Like this whole network of people involved in the court, the judges, the lawyers, the attendants, the, I guess, pseudo-lobbyists, people in different factions trying to advocate for different judges, different defendants. They're actually, none of them give a shit about Kay at all. No. they don't, And they don't care about any of their clients because they're all just jostling to be doing well in their own industry. And I was both amused and terrified by that. Right, because what hangs in the balance, like Solzhenitsyn talked about, is human life. Right, like there's a great Solzhenitsyn line where he says, you know, they invented this great thing in Russia where since truth is never final anyway, since we can never know the ultimate truth anyway, relative truth is kind of the best that we have. So whether or not for sure this person is a reactionary or whether for sure they're anti-communist tendencies. It doesn't really matter. We can't know for sure. So we don't need to know for sure. And then uh, Solzhenitsyn beautifully ends it with the line, but the bullet is always final. It is not relative. Yeah. (laughs) You know? And this kind of swaying relativity of these quote-unquote professionals that he has to come across and deal with in the trial are unencumbered by whether or not Kay lives or not. Yeah. You know, that's not really part of their purview. No. They're just trying to figure out how to do well in the system. And I'll tell you, man, that 
so resonated with me from what I've seen working in some nonprofits and some workplaces that are heavily skewed to the administrative side of things versus the operational side of things. It is all jostling and careerist maneuvering. You've probably seen it a lot in politics. Oh. I would imagine, right? Well, I, I don't... So why, why is that? What's the, I don't know how to put it as a question, but like, why? what is the incentive to forget about the people that are supposed to be the thing that you're doing your job for in the first place? Well, I think... I mean, there's a cynicism to any system, hmm. right? I think, um, I think idealism is often washed away by the brute force of reality. People think, oh, I, I came here to make a difference, and then... I think people could be overwhelmed by just how much suffering there is in the world. Mm. When you say, I want to change the world when you're younger, <laughs> that's a lot different than when you've realized how much needs to be changed. Do you remember that Against Me song? I was a teenage anarchist. No, I don't. The, 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 the line in the course is, do you remember when you were young and you wanted to set the world on fire? <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> and, and, and I think it's because... Uh, because we see how much pain there is, right? Mm. And so then these people become cynical. And like, I think of the justice system, like in in this book particularly, none of the, they're all just going through the motions of their day. Yeah. Basically, I mean, another let's say another facet of this story, which is why so many people love it and why it's brilliant, is because it's someone just getting lost in the in the grind of something like it's uh, literally too yeah. right he's lost in these attic hallways trying to find the courtroom right because it's weirdly in an attic and yeah it's like a dream yeah, too yeah it is right? like a dream exactly and the dream is what the dream is the universe doesn't give a shit <laughs> right ultimately that's yeah. the, that's the terror the horror of kafka yeah, that, that's you can the existentialness of it. And you can yeah. be ground to death by something that never even knew you existed. Yeah. But it is still, I maintain, made up by human beings who exist and are yet engaging in a process that is not what the stated... The judiciary system was not set out on the premise to give people jobs in the judiciary no, system, right? No. It was set up at the premise of justice, let's say, or, I mean, not to be too high-minded about it, but to, like, have at least some sort of operational pragmatic system. Rule of law, For dealing, yeah. dealing with um, lawbreakers and people who are making your society difficult to live in for other people in your society, which is that's the whole job of the government in the first place is to yeah. make sure that people aren't fucking with other people too <laughs> yeah, far. That right? should be. Enforcing contracts or, yeah, or things, yeah. things of that nature, right? So that's like why the law, the judicial system gets put in in the first place. But, but, but then, then it, it be, just becomes yeah. the people who have jobs in it and they're just kind of become insular and rotational and very perfunctorily interested in their clients like Kay. Yeah. Have you or, ever done uh, Jack or read any Jack London? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so you read Seawolf, right? I think I, mm. I'd recommend it. I definitely read Call of Wild. I don't think I've read yeah. Seawolf. So Seawolf, there's a line in it where one, one of the characters who's like embodying the Nietzsche and Uberman, right? Right. And he's like, everything's just yeast. Mm -hmm. And you know how yeast grows? By eating other yeast. And right. Who, who could become the biggest yeast, mm. right? And I think to a, to a degree, that's what happens to the iron law of bureaucracy, mm. right? Is is, is they start out on these ideals, right? Mm -hmm. The rule of law, you know, the dignity of man, all this kind of stuff. 
but eventually the vision of why something was created is lost and it's just perpetrated as a living thing mm-hmm. right it just its purpose is to grow and expand mm-hmm. and i think we see that with the justice system like there are too many laws in this country <laughs> there's too many rules mm-hmm. and and and, they, and that's what happens there gets to be so many rules that people are crushed by them yeah and like there's always a kind of superficial reason given for why there's so many laws. And like, I'm, I'm not going to say that it's not like it's impossible that you could find a new rule or a new law that's important. Maybe there's an emergent element of human life that we haven't really thought about a lot before. And there needs to be laws or rules around that thing. Yeah. Um, like cars, like for a while, yeah, there's yeah. no rules around burgeoning technology and yeah. privacy. Like this is all legit stuff to talk about, but that fact gives cover to more sinister motivations of people who stand to gain by having maybe more power or more say or more influence being an influencer (laughs) in this kind of judicial system right and we talked about this a little bit before recording but nothing is more of a kryptonite to a bureaucrat than irrelevancy yeah and if that's the case then you would imagine that they would try to build more relevancy for themselves right not going to stay neutral uh, and the more rules, the more laws, the more bylaws, the more infractions, the more community standards, whatever, the more ways you can trip that up. And especially the vaguer the language. There's so much vague language in this. Even the time. They tell him where to go. They don't tell him what time to be there. And then they chastise that, him for being late. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, like, yeah. All that kind of stuff, right? As if being late for a trial that you haven't been told to charge to is anybody's fault but the people who are or charging. Or the time. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to pick apart a few elements of this. There is the existential element of this, which is that grinding down that Kay feels. There's the kind of natural bureaucracy elements of all this, which is the confusion around who to go talk to about something. But there's also the added malignant element of bureaucracy that I think is Kafka's point about what he might have been seeing bureaucracy becoming more and more like this malignant feature, which is surreptitiously hostile to its clients, actually, not just unhelpful, but also trying to hurt them, but not trying to hurt them, trying to have a system that will inevitably hurt people. And it just happens to be, be K them. in yeah. this one. That's who we happen to follow it's, in this it's book. The, the, the process is the punishment. That's mm-hmm. Kaf- That's like the yeah. Kafka yeah. Exactly. idea. So really depressing. Yeah. <laughs> really depressing book. Because part of it is also that they make K... I wouldn't say I didn't like him, but I also don't think he was that likable. Like he was neutral. He's, he's neutral and he's a little bit unimpressive in conversation so like there's all of these conversations he just doesn't seem to handle his uncle very well he doesn't seem to be particularly charming with this woman that he has a crush on right in, in yeah. the thing he doesn't know how to say the right thing to anyone ever to help out in his particular situation in that moment and yet he has a very high opinion of himself hmm. right Don't they always though? <laughs> yeah well yeah sure there's this one scene early on where after Kay finds out about the trial and he has, I think it's like someone he's friendly with at the bank, but he doesn't engage with them at all in the scene. And it's because he's always worrying about this other thing about the trial. And I was like, that is such a great encapsulation of him in this book is that there's so many missed opportunities because he's thinking about something else. Have you, I've definitely been there. Mm. 
trapped in my own head, lost in my own thoughts. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I find, yeah. It's the easiest place to be. Yeah, well, (laughs) and yet it's the saddest place to be. Yeah. Because if you can't get new data, you can't grow, so you're stuck in this kind of almost... I mean, I think that's why you, you love exploring and reading and learning so much is because that's where joy and growth come from. Mm-hmm. You have to bring the external to the internal. Mm-hmm. But if you just mull around in the internal. Mm-hmm. And that's the other thing. He kind of, he resigns himself to this. Mm-hmm. He doesn't even fight it. Yeah. And a big part of that, I think, is because of what you just described. He's, he just kind of, a, he's a passive observer of his own life. Mm-hmm. Another, I've alluded to it a few times, but I think another main element of the book that struck me, and I, I, it might be worth a few minutes convo, is um, I was really interested to note in how the police reacted to Kay's reactions, right? Because the police come in, you're under arrest, what for? We don't have to tell you that, yada, yada, yada. But then they are again, chastising him, belittling him, making him, why are you complaining? Just come do this. And I just wonder, like, in in our liberal democratic societies, that's not how police are supposed to behave, right? It really isn't the business of a public servant what my opinion is on what they're doing. No. They're not there for my moral betterment. They're not my moral teachers. They're not even my parents. They're not trying to like improve my attitude. And yet so much of the officials, whether it's the cops or even some of the officials in the court, are nannying Kay yeah. as well as getting him or bringing him in. I don't know. Like that stuck out to me. What, what's your take on the nannying element of the officials in this? Well, I mean, I think it's just is there, it's very apropos for what we've experienced over the last two years, you have to wear a mask. You have to do these things. You have to act a certain way. You and you get chastised. You're a bad person if you don't do it. If you don't, if you don't comply with with these instructions that they claim or have all this rationale, but then as the evidence begins to build that they don't seem to, they double down on it. Yeah, but I mean, at least in COVID, there was like a disease, right? You know, in the book, yes. there isn't even and the, that, and, and there isn't even that. And I agree. <laughs> But I'm just saying it just it seems like this new form of tyranny, which I really like how you've coined that the the, the tyranny of modernity, mm-hmm. let's call it, or yeah. the, the modern tyranny. It the tyranny of paternalism. It empowers the powerless. Mm. Can you imagine in some past scenario having a retail employee tell you about what you have to wear? <laughs> yeah. Right. Never. Yeah. And that if you didn't wear it, well, maybe like the, they would say no sandals or, you know, maybe, or you have to wear a shirt in the store. But like, there wouldn't be a demand that you have to wear. Well, the police department is publicly funded. Yeah. A store is not, so they can have then they can more do that, but, esoteric but, rules. But then to have the government say, hey, retail employees, now you all have to enforce this new thing. It, it empowers people. Mm-hmm. It gives them a sense of, of authority over others. And I think this is the big critique of Kafka as well is that authority when you just give it to people mm-hmm. that before it's earned and it's by position like these police officers their authority has nothing to do with what reason they've been given to arrest it just that they have it yeah and that's how they're acting yeah right Which- why would you defy my authority 
Yeah, right? but but it goes into comical realms. Again, this is what I think is part of the genius of Kafka is it goes to where we can kind of see it, but it even goes a few steps beyond to totally satirize it and expose it because it's not even just why are you complaining or shut up. It's also like you're not allowed. Why are you wearing that shirt? Yeah. Right? It yeah. gets into things as personal and minuscule as what kind of shirt Kay is deciding to wear to the court that he's been summoned to. Or you, who you have over to your Thanksgiving dinner. Right. Like, that is not the business of public servants. No. <laughs> what kind no. of shirt you wear when you get arrested. <laughs> it isn't. Like, it's, um, it is this weird crossover into the state or the authority as parent and as again school marm smacking your hand with a with yeah. a a ruler cuz you've been naughty <laughs> you yeah. know you, in, you are in in the interpretation of the school marm or it's the uh, it's the you know the overbearing religion mhm right it's dogmatism yeah it's a belief that authority exists for authority's sake and you can't question authority yeah but I just, I, I, again, I think appreciated the, in a functioning society, the people who have the uh, license of the state to enforce violence, which are police officers, let's say, them and a few, like other officers of the law on the court, they're not entitled to give you advice, <laughs> you know? Like, yeah. that's not their job. And so... When that starts to happen, when you start to get some kind of like moralization by the people who have the power over you of your behavior, that is a that is a I think a, a harbinger of something wandering into something not democratic. Yeah. When there starts to be this more human layer of opinion giving to you, it's, that's that's the lawyer's job. To tell him what shirt to wear. Yeah. Not the police. No, and the lawyer that he hires or if he can't afford it, that the state hires for him. Right? Yeah. Not. Yeah. It does, you're right. This they got outside of their job descriptions. Yeah. In a sneaky, surreptitious way again. It's just adding more tyranny. I don't know. I, I, I did find the disconcerting side of it being the unknowing, but I didn't find that the most disconcerting mm-hmm. part. The most disconcerting part for me is that these people just assumed their authority. Mm-hmm. It was just, we are in charge of you. And even worse, Kay just agreed they had authority. Mm-hmm. Although in chapter five, and I don't remember why, because I did read it a while ago, the police who arrested him get punished. Yes, well, because he does. So that's the funny, I was actually going to bring that yeah, part yeah, okay. up, right? The system doesn't care about anybody, including yeah. the system, yeah. right? So, uh, and right, that was, okay. I think that's the most shocking moment in the book for me. I mm. was going to bring it up a little bit later, but is is that it, it's it's not making authority personal. Right. Right, it's, it's that, oh, well, you complained about this guy and he didn't do his job properly, which resulted in me having to do work because someone complained. Now you're going to be punished. Right. It was never really outlined why... He was being punished. It was just, I mean, I mean, it was outlined why because of how he reacted to Kay and kind of mocked him and stuff. It wasn't professional, and yet mm-hmm. it wasn't the fact that he wasn't being professional. It felt like it was the fact that, that Kay that complained about. Complained. It. Yeah, yes. exactly. So they're not actually interested in preventing that behavior. They just are. 
not wanting to have the tarnished reputa- reputation of being a system that people complain about. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, of course, eating your cake and having it too. That's the, I learned that's the actual origin of the expression and it makes more sense because right. if you eat your cake, yeah. temporally it's already gone, so you can't have it as opposed to having uh, your cake and then, and eating, then eating it, it too. Right? right. So I found that amusing because then it's also even more disorienting from the existential point of view of all this. It's even more disorienting for Kay because now he's feeling sympathy for the people that he previously felt anger and revulsion to. And it's even like one layer removed from who he's actually upset with. Yeah. Because well, now he, he's, he doesn't even know who he's Now he's feeling with. sympathy for the only faces he has seen in all of this that are like other than the judge. And so and he's, he's responsible for that person being punished, too, yeah. right? Because it was his complaint. Yeah. So there's like an extra level of cruelty there. Yeah. Because you tried to stick up for yourself. Now we're hurting somebody else. And that's not uncommon trope in no. literature, but also in. You know, it's like what in the gang gangster life, like, well, we're not going to, they won't kill you. They'll kill someone in your family and that kind of thing, right? Like they go after, they go, uh, there's some movies like, you go after his heart, not his body. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and in a mild sense, that was that thing. It's like, man, that's just another layer of cruelty that this system has. Yep. In, in that disembodied way. So we probably should spend a few minutes talking about the cynical nature of probably most important scene of the book, which is his conversation with the painter. And it's hilarious to me that the only person in the book that he has an even mildly legitimate conversation about his trial with is someone who isn't working in the court. Right. (laughs) It's a painter. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And the painter gives him three options Full acquittal, something else acquittal, something else. Like basically you either go for being totally acquitted, you do it in a way that gets you a half acquittal, or you push you basically push kick the can down the road forever. Right. And he says, actually you have no chance of the first one. Total acquittal. It doesn't it's never happened. Right. You can get partial acquittal, you'll be getting you'll be half guilty. You'll get some punishment, but not so bad. Or you can do this other one where you just keep filing injunctions basically until it's until you're dead right. from old age and you're still in this trial. And he only says the last two are your only options. The first one doesn't exist. <laughs> so I don't know. What did any of that segment make you think about? Well, just that like in a system where you are powerless, where you're not sovereign, let's say, mm-hmm. you're not allowed to be not guilty if the system says you're guilty. Right. They got to save face. They're not going to arrest innocent people. This is the thing, but also the system's never going to take responsibility for being wrong. Mm, yeah. And I think that's the interesting maybe dilemma that we're in right now as a society is maybe some of the decisions that were made, maybe they were made with good intentions. Let's, let's, let's steel man this, mm. right? A lot of the decisions that have been made had really negative consequences for a lot of people. Yeah. And now the system doesn't want to admit that. They want to call those people names. They want to ostracize them that kind of thing because the system but but it goes back to what happened in uh, what basically the artist says right? Mm-hmm. the painter says you can never get full acquittal yeah the the, the the system requires people to believe that it's never wrong mm-hmm. and i mean isn't that what happened and it can't let you go it can't let you go it can't let you go without at least you being guilty enough 
for the 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 cops and the court system to have arrested you in the first place. Maybe it's not everything that they wanted, but it was still worth it. Or you're just in pure survival mode, kicking the can down the road forever. Yeah. Problem is you can't kick the can. <laughs> I mean, that's the what road. the book... Yeah. You can't forever. And in that back and forth between Kay and the painter, Kay asks some questions that probably are close to Kafka's own heart and certainly the audience reading it. Kay was just like, well, why do we even have the option of full acquittal if it's impossible? And it's something like, well, because then we can say we have that option. Like yeah. it's a PR thing basically. Because but here's the thing that like when a system like this in the book or there's an aspiration to this sort of legitimate reason for having authority, even if it's never to be practiced. Mm -hmm. And that's always been a fascinating psychological feature of human beings to me is that very rarely will you come across someone who legitimately says, no, I don't think this is true or right, but I believe it anyway. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like almost all groups who have a claim to something like truth, they understand that there's someone will be better to believe it if it's true than if it isn't it's just whether or not they can demonstrate that that thing is true or not is or what counts as a fact but the kind of overarching value is like well it's it, we believe it because it's true or, yeah. or we you know this is what we think it is in the book we have a court system so that someone can get acquitted if they need to like they know that that's a value that they should have and so they put it out so there into the world, but it, doesn't, but it, but never it will never happen as opposed to and in that a sense, more honest tyrant like the king. This is maybe yeah. another modern version of tyranny. The, uh, the honest king says, no, you will never be fucking... <laughs> no. You will either work for me forever or I will kill you. There's no, uh, there's no option of acquittal. No. That's not even on the table as a PR no, version there's either. There's need to right? be PR in that system. So again, these modern forms of weight bearing down on your soul and your mind have public relations and that kind of element to them that previous forms of tyranny didn't really have i guess part of its propaganda too yeah it's interesting that in this world that has faceless systems it requires it still has to pay lip service to justice even mm -hmm. though the painter is very clear there is no justice here because that's its warrant in the first place the only reason it can do it is because it's lying about what it is. Kind of like at jobs where I've had, where the emphasis was like, it's on the betterment and experience of the kids and families coming to that. Oh, really? Yeah. Then why do we never do that? Yeah, why, why don't we care about that at all? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But it's still on the table as the stated value. Yeah. Yeah. Now, it's so weird. It's so weird because it's so easy to see straight through. up lie but it's so easy to see through yeah. i think that's a part of the demoralizing element of it is that it's a lie but it's also a really shallow lie and easy to easy for anyone with their eyes open or their like brains on them to see around and it's kind of the audacity of not being more attempting to live up to the lie yeah, that, that is demoralizing because it's like, well, what is the fucking point of this? Well, the point is it my reaction to it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, I mean, I think it basically is summarized in the 
process is the punishment. Mm -hmm. There's also a scene just before the death scene where he talks to a priest for a little while, but I don't remember much from that scene. Do you? Mm. I think it's more just like maybe the priest helping him come to terms with this situation. So this is not a long book, so it kind of makes sense that this wouldn't be a long episode, but do you have any things we haven't talked about yet? Or well, I guess we haven't talked about maybe the, let's call it the reverse. Is okay. That, that maybe this doesn't have to be how it is. Oh, yeah. Okay. Right? Like Yeah, I like this. Maybe maybe the truth of this book is that there's, there's two layers of truth. There's the first and more, maybe more obvious layer, which is, this is what the system can do to you. Mm-hmm. And this is what the system will do to you. And this is what people will do to you. Yeah. Empowered by this system. Right. But maybe, and I would like to believe this to be true. Mm. Maybe it doesn't have to be that way. Mm-hmm. Actually, you've opened my eyes to how even I've been feeling like things are quite bad recently, but even some of the things you've been saying, it's like, well, actually what we're looking at here is maybe there is an opportunity to, mm-hmm. to, to point out the good, we do still have phone numbers. Yeah. It's kind of what I've been saying to people for the last year is maybe we, our democracy could still work mm-hmm. if we actually engaged with it. Totally. Yeah. There's, um, I mean, maybe the point of like the meta point of this book is that it's so talked about and yeah. fascinates so many intelligent people. And for, for such a kind of straightforward and, not very sexy prose type of book. Here it is, you know, basically a hundred years since publication and it's not left culture. How many books published in the 1920s are not talked about anymore? Oh, probably almost all of them. You're right. But here we are a century later noticing how what Kafka noticed is noticeable. Yes, yes. <laughs> We're paying attention. <laughs> yeah. We're still paying attention. And that is really the beginning of an antidote to a problem, is to pay attention to it. Yes. And to figure out what it is about the trial that might be accurate about our world at times, what is maybe hyperbole, what is social insight versus philosophical speculation. Because there's some, there's, there's, I still have to say, there's more evil in the tyranny, in the trial than I have yet seen in reality in right. our world. Yeah, that's, I think, what I took kind of took from you what know? you were saying is, like, there's a lot more evil There's there. things that could have happened in our countries that are worse than did happen. It doesn't mean the things that happened are good. Yeah. But there are ways you could... This is something philosophy, I think, is so valuable for in mental life and the world is that it... Daniel, Daniel Dennett calls it twisting the knobs on a thought experiment. Philosophy helps people think about, okay, here's what's happened. If this one thing is changed, what would that have been like? If you change this other thing instead, what would have that been like? It allows you to like kind of think of all those forking garden paths of possibilities of a, of a situation, not just the one that did happen. Like it's so, yeah. uh, we're evolved to notice yeah. what happens. But that, I and mean, it's harder work to think about the five, six, seven, ten things that could have happened. And if we want that to happen, here's what we have to do next time. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And that is actually philosophy working. That's what it's supposed to do. Yeah. You know, like, uh, yeah, no, I don't want to pay debts to faceless tax agencies that don't put a contact phone number yeah. on them. No. Right? Or no. an email. Or some way of contacting them. Or I don't want to pay and not get a receipt, right? I get receipts when that happens still. Yeah. That is 
one level not as bad as the trial. Yes, yes, <laughs> and and maybe we can get. I love that, and and I think we can take more back. Yeah, but I think there's only one way. The antidote to the horror of the world presented to us in the trial hmm. is personal sovereignty. Yeah, it's saying, "Sorry, faceless state, I don't care what your rules are. I'm not obeying them," mm-hmm. and not being okay with faceless forms of chauvinism and act an accusation yeah right like maybe a thing that could be taken from this from a social media perspective let's say mm-hmm. is there's all these people yelling at you saying things about you acting like they know you bullying you attacking you whatever it might be if you're a person out there trying to do something in the world mm-hmm. who cares mm-hmm. ignore them yeah you don't have to accept their trial yeah that's a good point and also like insisting that people who are like going after you if it's legitimate they can tell you exactly what it is this is kind of the ethos of like a scientific experiment is that a hypothesis is pretty given the context of whatever it is it's trying to study a scientific hypothesis is pretty specific yeah in the same way that a charge you are under arrest for the kidnapping of this person well now this is your problem not the million of other problems that could have been if they say you're under arrest yeah. You know? Yeah. And again, that is a gain of civilization as opposed to, eh, just take them. Yeah. Get we don't like them. them. We don't yeah. like them. You know? And so there's that. As you know, as I talk about on my other podcast, Liberal Soul, like one of the things that I think has been, is super important and has erstwhile been underemphasized in liberal philosophy is being mentally free in your life, not just physically free. Yes. Right? The philosopher who has done the best job of talking about that is John Stuart Mill, which I think is why he's the OG liberal philosopher is because he took political and social philosophy and also talked about what goes on inside like a single person's head. I think Stoicism also played a pretty good reflection on that. For sure. Yeah. But Stoicism being like obviously modern books on Stoicism do this really well because they talk about the things in modern life that right. <laughs> might yes. Just, yes. The like original books are very kind of maybe like, they're hard to access. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, hard to access, and the examples are from like Rome and Greece, which are not as relevant. Which I, yeah, to I always today. love, but I understand. Yes, yeah. most people don't. Yes, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> cool. Well, that's the trial. Yeah. Well, Luke, it's good to be back. Yeah, it's definitely good to be back. Not let and... it be this long next time. Now yeah. that I have more free time. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, thank you for listening to us. Talk about the trial and back to recording. My name is Luke Mason. My name is David Parker. May the force be with you. And also with you. 